Welcome to PX48 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Hi Jess. I'd like to start off by reminding listeners to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for details of all our podcasts and for any future announcements. We'd also like to encourage anyone with suggestions for future podcasts to email us at planningexchange at gmail.com. We also encourage you to leave us a review on the podcast app as this will also help us to reach more listeners across the globe. Today we'll be chatting with the delightful Kaz Redding, a town planner and principal of Red Inc Planning. Kaz has worked as a town planner since 1999 in local and state government and the private sector. She established Red Inc Planning in 2006 and is also a sessional member of planning panels in Victoria. Of her many skills, one of which Kaz is particularly passionate about is good policy development and how we train planners to develop policy in the context of planning and planning schemes. We'll talk to her more about this during the podcast. I'd also like to mention that Kaz was named as a fellow of the Planning Institute of Australia at the 2018 Victorian Peer Symposium, an incredible recognition of her conspicuous service to the planning profession. Welcome to the show, Kaz. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thanks very much, Jess and Peter. It's great to be here. Kaz, can you give our listeners a, a bit of a bio, apart from Jess's great introduction? Well, Jess has covered it off, really. I've been working <laughs> Nothing as, I've missed. <laughs> I've been working as a strategic planner for 20 years now. Um, I actually started, I studied town planning and hated it so much that I decided to go and work in retail. So the first four or five years after I um, left uni, I was actually the marketing manager for a national chain. And then I decided I either had to pursue that or move into planning. And I moved into planning. And I found that that marketing's really... Um, put me in great stead as a planner. So that's just a little extra bit to the bio. Very interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about your business, Red Inc? Yeah, so Red Inc started um, 13 years ago, this January, when I got very unwell and I was unable to work in the um, in, in normal employment. So I thought, well, I better start a business then. And I started out quite broadly, so working in the areas of community consultation, strategic planning, development and so on. And over the years I've really specialised in policy development and writing planning schemes and um, I'm really enjoying that. My clients are all in the public sector, so I work for lots of local governments, I do work for the state government and I also work with statutory authorities such as Vic Roads and some of the water authorities. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Red Inc. So your your business is based in Bright, um, which is northeast of Melbourne, about three hours from Melbourne. Um, but you're not doing specifically regional work. You're all over Victoria. Yes, yeah. I'm all over Victoria. So I've got clients at the moment running from Hindmarsh in the west of the state through to East Gippsland. Um, I do work in Melbourne as well. Um, I do do a little bit of work for statutory clients, particularly up in the northeast, and little parcels of work from time to time for the local councils, but really I am spread out all over the state. I oh, don't wreck Hindmarsh, Kaz. I was there for seven and a half years. I love Hindmarsh. <laughs> so the people for, are great. For our listeners, that's in the Wimmera, <laughs> which is about three and a half hours from Melbourne. It's very a wheat belt area. And uh, when I was there, I tried to keep the strategic planners out there because it seemed to be working quite well. But Kaz, just well, one of tread the carefully. One of the interesting things about Hindmarsh is, is I made a fatal error when I consulted with their councillors about their planning scheme review and said... 
I've never worked for a council that's got population decline. And that did upset some of the councillors quite a bit, even though it's true. But um, it's brought, it's raised a whole lot of challenges that I've never had to confront in planning because I've always been planning for growing populations. So that's been quite interesting, but I won't wreck it. I think it's a lovely place. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Kaz. I'll hold you to that. One of the core parts of your business is policy development. Why is it important and, and what's the secret to good policy? I mean, we talk about policy all the time, Jess, but no one actually says, well, why is it important? Mm. And what's good policy? Well, I think that there's two elements to policy. There's the policy content and there's the policy expression. Um, and I really do, well, I, I focus on both, but... In answer to that question, I really wanted to, to focus on the expression element of it. And I think one of the issues that we have when we're writing policy is we just write way too much. And we write the same thing again and again and again in the hope that by saying it 10 times, it will come true. So, you know, I, I think that um, it's really important when you're drafting policy that you edit continually. Um, you write short sentences, you put in things that are measurable, you're very clear and you use simple words. You don't confuse ideas. And I always, um, when I'm teaching Planet, I always tell the students the story about the Dear John letter. And a woman wrote to her boyfriend who was in the war and said, Dear John, if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. And I think that really sums up policy writing. You write better if you edit, 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 take your time and make it short and sharp. And because um, they, they say when you get new tools, the horizon of your search expands. Uh, and I, was, I, was, I came across this through astrology. They've got new telescopes and all of a sudden they see all new sorts of things and it turns things on its head. What, what's happened in policy formation over the past 10 years that has shown new ways of looking at things? Mm. Well, I think um, the new tool is GIS. Um, I know that's been around for longer than 10 years, but it's just come so far. Just explain a bit. So GIS basically are mapping, mapping systems. Um, when I started as a planner, I don't, which was 20 years ago, I don't think we had a GIS system. You know, the engineers were still using hand-drawn maps. The planning scheme was printed out maps. They were giant and you used to flip over these massive pages and that was all you had. Now we've got um, a GIS system where you can put as many layers as you want. Um, onto something. So you can map the soil, you can um, map the, uh, the the bushfire patterns, you can map the water courses and just layer and layer things up so that you get this incredibly sophisticated picture of a place that in the past we never could. And I really think that's expanded our horizons in planning greatly. And I think there's a huge opportunity for us to use those tools way, way more in our planning. And how do we get an understanding of planning policy in terms of outcomes? And how do we test the effectiveness of pol policy? So I think that's a really tricky question. Um, I think the easy answer to that is we have a look at VCAT decisions and analyse them and see if a policy's aided or not aided, a council or a developer. Which, which is the traditional way in Victoria of how we do That's determine right. if it's, it's good or bad. It's very reactive. And, yeah. and just Kaz, to, for listeners outside the state, VCAT is the state independent tribunal that reviews 
challenges to council decisions or refusals or whatever. So it's it's an independent board and they give written decisions. That's right. And so. only between 3 and 5% of all applications even make it to VCAT. So when we're, when we're analysing and measuring VCAT decisions, we're actually only measuring the tip of the iceberg and we're doing it after the fact and it's generally a negative framework. Um, so I think um, one of the issues is we're not very good at specifying measurable outcomes of what we want our policy to achieve. And because we're not good at that, it's really difficult for us to know whether or not we've succeeded. And um, I, I'm, I've just started working on a project with the City of Melbourne um, and SGS and MGS Architects, two other consultancies in Melbourne. And that's, um, that's looking at the uh, North Melbourne Innovation District up around the universities and the hospitals and so on. And they've actually asked us to project what sort of um, development is likely to come if if the innovation tools are in place from a planning perspective and then check the planning scheme to make sure it's actually got the right tools in place to facilitate the sort of development they want. And I think that's a really great process. Um, part of the process is we're going to be looking at everything that's been approved in the last five or ten years and checking, is that what you wanted? Is that what you expected against your strategic framework? So I guess it's very difficult to um, measure a policy and test its effectiveness unless you invest in that and unless you've defined really clear measurable outcomes at the start. It's sort of um, putting an emphasis, I guess, on the evaluation post-policy as well. I think that's something that we don't do enough or we don't do properly, mm -hmm. um, even with strategic planning, um, you know, master planning and that sort of thing, actually going back in 10 years' time and saying, was this successful? Yeah. Um, did it meet all of our goals? And, yeah, I think that's something we can definitely improve on. Well, another example of that is at the moment, as you know, we're doing a lot of greenfields development around Melbourne. And I've been working with the VPA and various developers on some work with that. And one of the things we've found is that nobody's actually going back and saying, so did that PSP deliver on what we wanted it to deliver? So just for our listeners, the VPA is the Victorian Planning Authority and the PSP is... A precinct structure plan. Thank so that's a, a plan that's pre um, prepared at the level of about 15,000 dwellings. Um, so it's a big development area and it might take 10 years for that area to develop out. So nobody's standing at the end of the 10 years and saying, well, let's go back and see what we wrote 10 years ago and check that we achieved it. So say there was a proposal in that PSP to, to develop 15,000 houses and four schools and this and that. No one actually goes and checks. So it's just a little example of how we're not measuring what we've achieved and checking that we're meeting the outcomes that we're seeking to meet. Yeah. You mentioned some of the challenges of policy, Kaz. One of the others is adequate community consultation. And there's a degree of scepticism, I think, within the industry and within the general public that you know, there's not much, a lot of it's lip service and that uh, governments don't really listen and uh, he who pays the piper gets to choose the tune. Um, what do you think? I mean, mm. is, are those fears...? Well... Peter, I have so much to say on this topic. <laughs> Within one minute. <laughs> I actually did my master's thesis um, on 
community engagement in the planning process. So it is a real passion of mine. I think from a personal level, it's been, I've become quite disillusioned. I, when I was a fresh green planner, I used to be very enthusiastic in consulting with the community. Now I'm a lot more measured because I know that there is a limited scope to what the community are able to influence from a planning level. Um, I think there's, uh, there's two different levels as well. So at a, a higher strategic level, people actually want different people actually have different agendas. So the government wants economic development to fit more people in, to minimise the size of the city, at the, um, whereas the community don't want that sort of growth happening in their local areas a lot of the time. So we've got an, a fundamental clash at that higher level. Um, and at a lower level, I again don't think we focus very well on outcomes for our communities. So what are the outcomes we want? That's what we should be asking communities when we go and speak to them, not too much on the detail, because the detail will come through when we do the action. But don't you planning. get just a whole lot of motherhood statements if you ask people what they want? They typically want more trees and more parks. Mm. But I think you need to ask people questions like, um, well, for a start, you can't ask them all the questions. If you know that the population is going to increase, you need to say, we're expecting an extra 10,000 people here. Now here are the choices. We can have an outcome where it's a medium density, um, high rise, you know, apartment style development scenario, or we can have townhouse development. So rather than asking people whether you want more people to live there, you're actually saying that's a given. Now what you can influence is how that might look, what the outcome might be on the ground. So that's sort of... Um, Setting the scene very early in the conversation. Yeah, but it, it is really hard because the other thing is we tend to go out as planners and then immediately say to people, oh, that's not a planning issue. We, we're not talking about that here. We don't care about how often the healthcare team come into your community to look after the old people because that's another person's issue. So there is that issue around um, not being joined up at a local government level and a, a, a state government level, and I think that's a big challenge. And I, I do not know any simple answer to that. I think it's a real challenge. Also, there is the issue of who responds when governments ask for opinions. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't respond. A lot of marginalised people don't respond. A lot of people who aren't in the area. Mm -hmm. This is a bit like that local policy thing we're talking to Dr Elizabeth Taylor about, Jess. So a lot of people don't aren't in that consultation mm -hmm. spectrum, are they? No, and I think that's... When I embark on consultation processes with councils, designing them, I always advise them to do something that's statistically measurable first. So that might be engaging a firm to do a statistically meaningful survey on 10 or 15 questions to frame what you might then delve into in a town hall meeting or that type of thing. Because um, I've often been confronted at town hall meetings with people saying things like, well, nobody wants a school over there. But then you go to the survey data and say, well, everyone wants more schools here. Mm -hmm. So what, what people say in surveys and what they do are sometimes very different. So, yeah, so they there, are. there's a lot of new research techniques about you know, like data, what people what people buy, what people yeah. do, what they search on the internet. Yeah. That tells you a lot more about people yeah. than what they'll say in surveys. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think I see surveys as one step better than town hall meetings, but even, you know, the whole 
there is so much data out there and we have not even cracked the tip of the iceberg in collecting and analysing it at a planning level. So, I mean, that's almost going back to that point you spoke about before with um, GIS and actually using the data that we have to both, I guess, assist in framing our consultation avenues but also helping in frame policy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that both of those things are very much about resourcing choices, yeah. about where we choose to put resources. And at the moment as a profession, we're not choosing to put resources in that sort of research. And you know, community-based and environment-based. Is that because it's more reactive? Uh, I think we are very reactive. And, but I still think it comes down to we... I think individual planners see the value in that research, but as a society, we don't see the value in investing in that to help formulate our plans. And Kaz, you, you specialise in rural areas and we were talking about dear old Hindmarsh Shire before. I mean, they are, that place is held together with a string and a bit of tape and they do a marvellous job with what limited resources they've got. They're rate capped by the state government. Um, the state government's not rate capped. Um, so they, uh, you know, strategic work is one of their lowest priorities because they just don't have the resources. I think there's a real imbalance between what's spent in the Melbourne metro area and what's spent in the regions. It's just a complete imbalance. I completely agree with you on that. And I am doing work up in the northeast of Victoria as well. We've got rural shires with populations of 6,000 people. You know, they just don't have the resources to do any strategic planning. And I always go into those areas with the view that um, planning just needs to get out of the way in those places because um, we have got a pretty robust state policy planning framework now called the PPF which will deal with most things so make sure planning's not taking up unnecessary resources. Yeah is there a problem with groupthink with planning policy I mean uh, how seriously is dissent tolerated Um, Another one to throw in, is there enough contested space Mm. in policy? So um, I I think there is a big problem at the moment. We're not set up to be particularly collaborative and we're not set up to uh, be particularly good at debating things. Is that Um, because people are scared, do you think? I think there's my biggest thing, I, I do think people are scared, but they're scared because they don't know. They don't feel confident in their knowledge as a planner. And is that the elders in the planning profession not encouraging that, that sort of open discussion? I mean, it's got to come from somewhere. Yeah, look, I think there's a couple of issues. One is I, I think we've got an opportunity at the university level to skill up our planners a lot more to deal with the Victorian planning system. Now, in Victoria, 80% of the graduates from a uni course are going to end up being a statutory planner in Victoria as their first job. And it'll be the same for other states, presumably. Yeah. and they're not well equipped for that. So they come in and immediately are overwhelmed by this document called the planning scheme. I don't think they're overwhelmed, Kaz. I think most people learn pretty quickly on the job. No, I, I agree. Um, you agree with me, yeah, Jess? No, I agree with Kaz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> surprise, Sorry, surprise, Pete. Oh. Come no, on. I think no, it's um, absolutely. So I think you're, it's a massive you're five issue. or ten years older than us, so Thanks, maybe Cass. you've got a better education. Well, I'm only <laughs> twenty-five, of course. 
<laughs> Five or ten years older than Jess, I'll take that. Um, but oh, I, I, think, I think learning on the job, you don't want people at uni being stuffed with their head full of statutory planning. Well, why not? Because they, you, want, you want their minds to expand, not to be... You there's know, there's two frames cr- of mind on that. I'll finish, I'll finish. Crushed with a brick and saying, this is your role to administer this zoning scheme. I mean, please, they should learn of the finer, the arts. They should learn all sorts of things and they can learn that all that, that re, you know, the nitty-gritty on the job very quickly. Okay, well, the problem I have with that is that they don't learn it on the job because there's not good mentoring structures in place. I now, my first project in local government was implementing the special building overlay in Hobson's Bay. Which is to do with flooding, listeners. To do with flooding. It's very boring. Anyway, I had never seen a planning scheme when I walked into that council. I'd never opened a planning scheme. I didn't actually realise there was a difference between planning schemes and the Act. Um, I went through all the paperwork and everything with the amendment and I thought to myself, why is there a um, notice of amendment and a gazettal notice, both of which are administrative pieces of paper that essentially the same thing, say the same thing. And I thought, oh, that's silly, because I was coming from a marketing background where you just didn't repeat information and you tried to make messages clear to the community. So I just left it out, got it all checked by my manager, who probably didn't have time to check it. It got sent out and we then had to get legal advice because we'd incorrectly. Rookie error, Kaz. You should have asked someone. I did. did. Let's move on, shall we? (laughs) We don't want to hear about, you know, we know you're a very competent planner now. Now, how how do we make progress with policy formulation? Kaz, what's the sort of things you'd like to see thrown into the mix? Look, um, I think that I'd love to see um, us working more collaboratively across the industry on things so we didn't have for instance you know 10 different councils writing an advertising signage strategy or policy we just did it once and we did it properly Mm. you don't agree i don't agree no that we need an advertising policy no i think we should have localism i think that's a good thing to have localism i think that's good to have difference and diversity but i think that we should be focusing our efforts on things that really are different for that local area so, for instance, where I live, um, we have a big problem with signs, but the issue is actually around tourism, not signs. So we should be focusing our effort on how do we want tourism to play out in this municipality over the next however many years. We shouldn't be worrying about the devil in the detail of the sign. So I'd quite like to see that. And also just building on what we said before about much more research-based and evidence-based policy development. I think there should be uh, innovator and incentive and recognition of new businesses in in planning schemes. There's nothing about that. Well, we don't even... um, We we, we don't name any businesses, do we? We, No, but just, you know... You're talking about startups. Oh, yeah. Startups or expansions or the need to promote growth and economic... Because in a lot of rural areas, unemployment's an issue. Well, a really good example of that is um, how do you deal with microbreweries? So microbreweries have been developing in rural Victoria as well as Melbourne, but rural Victoria is quite different. Um, Over quite a number of years now, a decade, we still don't have a definition of microbrewery and we still don't have any 
any easy means of helping facilitate that sort of development. So the first question a lot of planners ask themselves is how should I even deal with this, you know? So some planners will deal with it one way and some another. Thank you to Song Bowden Planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. So, Kaz, in terms of planning policy, what's changed over the past decade? Society's obviously changed quite considerably in that time in terms of economic drivers. Is policy behind that curve? Okay, so first of all, putting policy aside, what's changed is online planning schemes. So, as I alluded to before, when I started as a planner, there was no computerised planning schemes. That has made an enormous difference to the way we, we can make decisions. Um, I think we're also finally to learn how, uh, learning how the Victorian planning um, provisions work. So that's our template or toolbox of planning policies that we've got to select from in Victoria and how best to apply it. And I think that's really exciting because that's what I get excited about. <laughs> um, but look, it depends, I think, um, in terms... Um, in terms of policy, I think generally no. Policy does play catch-up in Victoria... But, uh, and, and everywhere else, to be yeah. fair. I don't think Victoria's that different there, Kaz. But I think for some really high-level stuff, um, policy has been really effective. So e- examples include intensification of popula- population in specific areas. So without planning policy, we would not have had intensif- intensification of population in places like Docklands, the city centre, South Bank. And on the flip side of that, greatly improved suburban development outcomes and that's been policy-led through the precinct structure planning work that we talked about before. But I do think that those are really high-level things. In terms of where we might have been dragging the chain, um, I think we really dragged the chain with apartment development and we had years of poor development occur before we got a decent apartment development code in place. And the other area I think we've really dragged the chain has been out of centre retail development. I think we had a policy vacuum at a really critical time and we got some poor outcomes because of that. Hmm. What can we learn from that? What do you, what do you think we, how do, you know, I mean, I, I, I disagree with you about the population intensity. I think that is going to be an unfolding story. I think history will judge that. I, <laughs> I think, you know, there, there's some pretty very poor outcomes in terms mm. of uh, design, amenity, the concentrating of that many people in those sort of areas in a country like Australia is ridiculous and the outcomes are, aren't great. So I, I don't think planning policy has been successful there. Yeah. I think it's just said, put as many people as you can in this small area, okay, that's successful. That, but that's the, successful. But, but yeah. the outcome of it, yeah. you know, what you're trying to achieve is not I completely agree with you. Okay, we, yeah. we just agree with everything, Cam. I know. That's good. That's so, what I do. so, um, uh, and, and what about how do we hack planning policy? Now, uh, the word hack there is used like like in computing to improve, not to get into it. Oh, okay. So it's, it's yeah. like how can you man- manipulate? It's probably the 
in, in a favourable way. Um, How do we mix it up? I've got one word. Mm. Database. We need a planning policy system that is database-based driven, not PDF driven. Um, That would change everything. Are you talking about all documents being available? No, I'm not. I mean, they should all be available. They absolutely should. But I'm talking about if we can... Um, we can design our system if we want to and smart planning which is our planning reform process that's been going ahead in Victoria over the last three years has made some terrific progress through this if you can database every bit of policy then you can if you want to do a planning scheme that applies just to a specific dwelling or a specific lot so all the person that's developing that land has to look at is what applies to their land and not have to wade through all of the other stuff. Um, that's, that's a literal hack, isn't it? You know, a computer-based hack. And I know that with the smart planning system, we're moving towards that, but I'm very hopeful that in 20 years' time, we will have made massive progress in that area. So you're an optimist on the planning policy front? Yeah. And what about interstate and overseas examples? Well, um, I hate to say it, but I don't really know much about how things are done overseas and interstate. Isn't that terrible, Cass? When you think that on your phone, you can research anything on the planet and And you are ignorant of these things. I I have from time to time researched specific topics and I also worked in the British system for a little while. And I learnt that in the British system, they waffle even more than us. Ah. <laughs> Is that possible? I, I, I did mean you in a bad way because I was having on. So. No, well, I remember working through a housing policy, as essentially the equivalent of a state-based housing policy, and it was 62 pages long. It was mm. impossible to interpret. Um, in, in terms of planning at a sort of higher level, in the UK, they've got a city deals pro- process, which I love, a... Are you familiar with that? No, no, no. So it's it's a process where instead of um, cities or regions bidding on a um, pool funding pool funding pool pool basis, so oh, there's six million dollars available for infrastructure, put in your bids, whatever. A city will approach the federal or national government and say, look, if you can provide us with a university and a hospital and this new overpass, we will guarantee that we'll provide 20,000 new jobs, um, 50,000 new dwellings and so on. So that rather than having to um, have a vision and then scramble for the money to pay for it, you actually do a deal up front. And I think that's a really wonderful way for us to move. And I know that's something that's been discussed um, at the... Um, at the federal level. So there's a, a, um, a paper that's just been handed down for the government to consider about that, and I think that's pretty exciting. And I also take great pleasure when I'm walking around developing countries with my 11-year-old son in going, look at those terrible footpaths, look at those terrible roads, look at all those electricity wires there. So that's sort of... I think uh, we're a long way ahead of that because of our affluence as a society. Have you got a young planner in your midst there? Uh, no, he actually thinks planning is the most boring job in the <laughs> world. And I have I have said to him, I think washing dishes is harder and boringer, but he disagrees. And, and Kaz, what are the good parts about your job and the not so good? But sort of really talking about the regional perspective. Yeah. So look, um, 
I just love interacting with people and working with other people, both planners and engineers and professionals, but also with the community. I really enjoy that. Um, and uh, the worst parts are, oh, look, sometimes I, I'm stuck in front of a computer for a day or two or three at a time and I, I do find that a hard slog. So I've actually been lucky enough... Um, to move into a shared office in Bright. It's the first of its kind in Bright, um, which is the small town where I live, town of 2,000 people. And I'm now sharing with another planner, a lawyer, an accountant and a stream um, health consultancy. So that's been really great as mm. well, just to have that, that professional sort of interaction so with people. Don't feel so isolated. Yeah, that's mm. right. And is there a particular message you would like to give to our readers? Listeners, sorry. Um, I think that what I've really learnt over my career as a planner is that it, it can't be perfect first time. I now do things in increments. Um, I aim for 100% improvement, but if I get 60%, I'm really pleased with that and take that as a win and move forward um, with the whole thing because it's a slow ship that we're sailing and it's hard to move around so we've just got to keep going and that would be my message. Now you spoke very briefly earlier on about mentoring who were your mentors growing up um, and do you mentor anyone now? So I've got Ben Cook as my mentee who works at Tract where Jess works and um, I was uh, paired with him as part of the Planning Institute mentoring program but I still maintain that I've probably learnt more from him than he's learnt from me um, and in terms of mentors for me um, I just have to mention Lester Townsend as being my best mentor that I've got he's he's been an inspiration to me and has helped me so much and I'm really fortunate I've had someone like that and he's a senior member at Planning Panels Victoria listeners and he's also a very good juggler he is a good juggler. He actually came to my Fun son's fact. seventh birthday as the juggler. Really? Yep. That wow. went down very well. <laughs> Lester the Jester, he's called. <laughs> and now being based in Bright, how are you enjoying country living? What's been the best part of the move? Well, um, for me, the best part of the move has been a significant improvement in my health. So I mentioned before the reason I started Red Ink Planning was because of health reasons and it's I actually have bipolar disorder. And I found um, three or four years ago I just could not manage and really got to a point where I decided something's got to change. And so I probably would never have moved to the country otherwise, but it's been a fantastic um, move from that perspective and added value to my life in every way. And what about your son? Is he enjoying it? Yeah, he is. He took a year or two to get used to it, but now he calls it home. Yeah, good. Yeah. And, and how do you relax and unwind? And uh, have you got any suggestions to our listeners of books or movies? Oh, or? yeah, yeah. So, well... This is um, podcast extra. Podcast <laughs> extra. Well, you know, I, I live in this beautiful beautiful part of Victoria and I actually moved there because I love the mountains so much. So um, I spend a lot of time in the outdoors doing walking, skiing, cycling, swimming in water holes, all that, that sort of stuff, picking blueberries. Um, I really love spending time with my son. He's, he's just a gorgeous kid and I'm really lucky I can have a flexible work life so that I can spend a lot of time with him. 
I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I'm on my school council, which keeps me busy and I'm really enjoying being on that. I'm in the choir in Bright and I love entertaining friends um, and having people over for meals and stuff. So mm. that that's the sort of thing I lot. like to do. That's yeah. a lot. Keeps me busy. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. And in terms of a recommendation for a book, this has nothing to do with planning, but I read one over the Christmas holidays called The Trauma Cleaner by Sandra Pankhurst. I think it was by her or she might have been the proponent. Anyway, it's a true story about a Melbourne woman and it's compelling reading and I'd highly recommend it to anyone. And Jess, what's caught your interest lately? I've been doing a lot of hiking, Pete. Um, similar to, uh, to Kaz, I spend a lot of time up in the um, around Mount Buller in that area. So I've been doing a lot of hiking up around Mount Stirling. Very relaxing. How about you, Pete? Well, I've got two latest things have caught my note and that is buildings designed for the senses, the audio, the smell and the touch, particularly for disabled people. And this is a very interesting new form of architecture. Um, you know, audio, for example, and how do, how do blind people relate to light and, uh, and deaf people sound. And the other is um, dogs. I'm just amazed how the place has been overrun by dogs. <laughs> and when you go out, people take their dogs everywhere now and there's just no, there's no manners. So you'll be sitting... Do you, do you like dogs? I love dogs. I do, okay, I good. love dogs. But it's just people just seem to take their dog anywhere now, people's houses, rest, you know, restaurants, pubs, and they just don't control them. This is a classic Peter Jewell rant. <laughs> it's very European. <laughs> Do you think? Oh, yeah. I Just don't think so. Just ask the French. No, the, yeah. There's a lot of dog <laughs> poo on footpaths. No, 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 I'm not talking about <laughs> that. So, listen, thanks very much, Kaz, for a, a wonderful interview and uh, shedding a, a light into regional planning. Very interesting, Jess. And listeners, uh, we are on part of the Urban Broadcast Collective. I would urge you all to have a look at that. There's a wonderful row, uh, series of podcasts from many different sources in Australia about town planning and design issues. So hope you look at the UB, UBC. So thanks, Kaz. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. Thanks, Pete.